You're listening to TIP. Yeah, you log into your Coinbase or your given exchange and you see a representation of your Bitcoin. Now that's on paper, that's a number on the screen. It is an IOU, right? That is their you know, obligation to you. That's your claim to a specific amount of Bitcoin. But is the given exchange you know, solvent? If there was a, a Bitcoin run on the exchanges, would they be able to service everyone? That's really, really important to focus on. On today's episode, I'm joined by Tyler Campbell to do a deep dive on Bitcoin self-custody. Many of our listeners know the benefits of owning Bitcoin in the crazy macro environment we find ourselves in today. So I thought it would be great to bring Tyler on to chat about the importance of securing your own keys and taking your Bitcoin off an exchange. Tyler is the technical director of Concierge Onboarding at Unchained Capital. He helps individuals of all ages and backgrounds take extreme ownership over their Bitcoin through multi-sig self-custody. When it comes to self-custody, there is no better resource than Tyler and the folks at Unchained Capital. During the episode, Tyler and I cover why self-custody is so critical and powerful for those that own Bitcoin, the role counterparty risk plays for Bitcoin holders, the differences between a hot and cold wallet, all of the terminology you need to know when securing your own keys, some best practices when it comes to securing your Bitcoin on a hardware wallet, what Unchained Capital offers related to their multi-sig solution, why Tyler prefers owning actual Bitcoin rather than a Bitcoin proxy like MicroStrategy or the Grayscale Fund, and much, much more. If you hold your Bitcoin on an exchange or hold Bitcoin proxies, this is a must-listen episode. For the rest of us, this is a fantastic conversation to brush up on the ins and outs of securing your own keys. With that, I hope you enjoy today's episode with the brilliant Tyler Campbell. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Clay Fink, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Fink. And today I am joined by Tyler Campbell from Unchained Capital. Tyler, welcome to the show. Hi, Clay. Thank you for having me. It's a really uh, big honor to be here. I'm excited to talk about Bitcoin today, self-custody. Really excited to educate the listener base. As you mentioned on today's episode, we are going to be doing a deep dive on self-custody solutions to help the listeners who own Bitcoin get a better understanding of what it is and why it's important. Before we do that, I wanted to tell a quick story about how Tyler and I got connected. I was on my flight back from Miami from the Bitcoin conference, and this guy behind me on the plane was just going on and on about Bitcoin, just chatting with the guy next to him, trying to educate him about all these different topics around Bitcoin. And I could pretty much hear everything he was saying. And I was just thinking, wow, I wish I could just hit record on my phone and just like hold it up to him. Cause like he was just like such a knowledgeable guy on Bitcoin and self custody. I ended, ended up introducing myself, told him I run a podcast, work with TIP. And I told him, man, I got to get one of your guys from Unchained Capital. Cause that's where he worked. He worked at Unchained Capital. I'm like, I got to get one of you guys on the show. So here I am uh, sitting here with Tyler today to talk about self custody. Yeah. And the, the funny thing there is that could be uh, just pick your employee at Unchained. Um, I, we're incredibly passionate about this stuff, You know, helping our clients, individuals and businesses secure their generational wealth by holding their own private keys. That is our sole focus. Um, and so everybody's incredibly passionate. That does not surprise me at all. Um, hopefully the passenger on the plane was like not taken aback too much, hopefully learned something. But yeah, really not surprised by that. 
Yeah, 100% very passionate about Bitcoin. And I can tell the same with you as well. I think the first place we should start is why self-custody is just so important. I typically don't take self-custody of my cash as myself and many other people hold their cash in a bank. And I don't take self-custody of my stocks. I hold it at a broker and they hold the ownership of the stocks for me. With that, why is it important that people who own Bitcoin take self-custody and actually own that Bitcoin themselves? Private key ownership, right? Self-custody. Um, is so much more than a cliche or an ideology. The phrase, not your keys, not your coins, has been around for quite some time, right? I saw it on t-shirts at the Bitcoin 2022 conference in Miami. Um, it's kind of this mantra now in the space. But I worry that it's become a little bit diluted in terms of its core messaging, in terms of the why behind not your keys, not your coins. Self-custody, at the end of the day, is a security principle. It's a security principle that was embedded in the white paper when Bitcoin was first introduced to the world 13 years ago. Bitcoin is meant to be an internet native money that can be sent back and forth amongst peers without any intermediary, no stamps of approval coming from anyone. Self-custody, the ability for you to take extreme ownership over the best money that's ever been created, right? If you think about the 21 million hard cap in Bitcoin, there's only ever going to be 21 million created. You know, my Bitcoin is my portion of that 21 million. It does not make sense for me to have that you know, owned by some other entity, right? I do not want my Bitcoin fundamentally being owned by some other entity, right? All Bitcoin is held on addresses and there are keys to those addresses. And either your exchange or a centralized entity holds those keys or you hold those keys. Um, and I think you know, we're seeing more and more the importance of individuals holding their keys. Like anything else in technology, there's user interface, user experience gaps that are certainly being filled in time and time again. I get to see it every single day. So the barrier to entry is really, uh, it's kind of dropping in terms of being able to hold your own keys, combined with the importance of it, of course, from a security perspective, along with the ease of use. I think that's the world where we're headed towards as individuals holding their own keys. In relation to the self-custody piece, I hear time and time again to minimize and avoid counterparty risk. How significant is this risk and why do Bitcoiners put so much emphasis on it? You know, someone living in the US we have a well-functioning society with a government that has generally respected property rights and private ownership of assets. Could you talk more a bit about maybe counterparty risk and why Bitcoin specifically we should take ownership of, you know, not some of these other assets? Absolutely. I think the phrase to hone in on there is generally respected, right? So the precedent has been set. I'm sure maybe it was 90 years ago, but in 1933, we had Executive Order 6102. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, um, which resulted in ultimately the confiscation of a particular amount of gold from American citizens. Sure, that was 90 years ago, but the precedent has been set. And when we think about counterparty risk in terms of a bearer asset, something like Bitcoin, where you can hold the keys, I want my Bitcoin to be an asset to me and a liability to absolutely no one else. I bucket counterparty risk. I kind of, in broad strokes, frame it in two categories. We have counterparty risk that comes in the form of permissioning and counterparty risk that comes in the form of security. For permissioning, right? I want to be able to move my Bitcoin at 1 a.m. on a Sunday if I so please. Now, if you hold your Bitcoin on exchanges, they hold the keys to that Bitcoin. They are subject to delays and withdrawals. Maybe there's a grace period of seven to 10 days where you need to approve addresses before you can send. Now, they put these hoops in place because you think about the incentive set that these counterparties have, these exchanges, well, of course, they want you to keep your Bitcoin on the exchange because then you're one step closer to trading for you know, somebody's weekend crypto project, and you're going to be losing out on the best money that's ever been created. 
when we think about also market volatility, exchanges have been known to you know maybe be out of service or undergo maintenance during periods of extreme volatility in the market. Um, so that's another way where the permissions just really are not in your control. You don't have permission to move your money when you so please. And then even in like the traditional financial system, we saw this in early 2021 with GameStop, right? The SEC and Robinhood came in and said, we're going to halt GameStop trading. It's like, okay, I want nobody to tell me that they can halt my movement of my Bitcoin. That is the, I think, counterparty risk as it relates to permissions. But then it's also security. When you hold your own keys, you are securing your Bitcoin yourself. You're not relying or outsourcing that security to a third party. We have Bitcoin that's held on exchanges. They are holding the keys. They are then subject to attacks from a few different vectors, right? You have, of course, black hat hackers who, you know, if there's a big honeypot, a natural incentive for them to want to go hack into these systems. There's also internal social engineering attacks, right? Employees at a given company could have access to a lot of special information. And you think about your account level security at a given cryptocurrency exchange when you're buying Bitcoin, is you have you know, your username, your password, maybe two-factor authentication. But even then, an employee at the company can reset two-factor authentication, right? It is, you want that login information that's sensitive to maybe be protecting information relating to your balances or something, but not ultimately your keys and the ability to move Bitcoin. Using that as a counterparty risk framework, of course, we do you know, live in, in the West and property rights generally respected. But for me, again, when I'm thinking about my portion of that 21 million, still the trade-off is always going to be in favor of holding my own keys. I think another thing worth mentioning is that when you own Bitcoin on an exchange, you essentially own an IOU. You know, you have your Bitcoin on Coinbase, they hold the actual keys like you mentioned. But what you own is just an IOU on Bitcoin. I mean, and what does that mean? You have to trust that Coinbase you know, stays in business. You have to trust that they manage their keys effectively. We saw a tweet earlier this week about Coinbase saying mm-hmm. that they may be subject to taking the coins of their clients if it means they'll remain in business. And another point worth mentioning is that these exchanges can be hacked. And if these exchanges get hacked and they can't pay back all their clients, then you're subject to potentially losing your Bitcoin. So I'm curious, are customers at some of these larger exchanges like Coinbase, are they insured against an event like this? Or how does that work if that were to somehow play out? A few things there. And I love that you mentioned that. Yeah, you log into your Coinbase or your given exchange and you see a representation of your Bitcoin. Now that's on paper. That's a number on the screen. It is an IOU, right? That is their obligation to you. That's your claim to a specific amount of Bitcoin. But is the given exchange you know, solvent? If there was a, a Bitcoin run on the exchanges, would they be able to service everyone? That's really, really important to focus on. When it comes to like the 10Q filing that Coinbase, they had to do a quarterly 10Q. In there, they had this disclosure about assets uh, on their platform are considered you know, under their custody. Um, and ultimately, any uh, customers would be basically unsecured creditors of Coinbase in that example. Do you want to be an unsecured creditor of a cryptocurrency exchange or do you want to hold your money, your wealth on your own keys? I think the more and more we frame this stuff and we think about it really hard, the choice is clear. Now, in general terms of service, all exchanges are going to have their own terms of service. And our generation, particularly Clay, like when I downloaded iTunes when I was younger, the terms of service, I just clicked through that as fast as possible. And I'm sure folks do that everywhere. You know, it's to no fault of the end consumer to the listeners out there who are using these cryptocurrencies exchanges, but it is a really interesting exercise to find these terms of service pages on your laptop, you know, tonight when you're hanging out, give it a control F and do a keyword search and really search phrases like loss of funds or theft protection. And you're going to uncover a lot of interesting things. Many popular exchanges have such programs in place. 
but they are maybe paid programs. So, you know, in order for your funds to be insured up to a specific amount, you have to be a part of a paid, you know, subscription product. You have to have all of these things done, maybe 10 steps, you know, provide your social security number, you know, have over X amount of funds on the platform, verify your identity in like 10 different ways. Like that's obfuscated so much from the from your cousin on Thanksgiving dinner who you told to go buy Bitcoin that that individual is generally not going to be protected under that under those policies. Again, this is Bitcoin. It's volatile. Uh, these exchanges come and go. Of course, Coinbase is a behemoth, but uh, like slay your heroes, right? Always be on the defensive, especially when it comes to your money. So yeah, it's a fantastic question. You know, if you are using an exchange and you're holding your Bitcoin on an exchange, do that exercise. Go to those terms of service and, and check out what you might be subject to. In many ways, Bitcoin is just this massive tool of empowerment that when I think about it, sometimes it just blows my mind how any country can go into any exchange, shut them down, tell them to do X capital control, and just they can do whatever to these companies, but they cannot touch the Bitcoin network. If you own your private keys, you own it and you can you know take it anywhere in the world that you want to. So talk to us a little bit about the recent CNBC story that they put out in relation to Bitcoin and what's going on in Ukraine. So I go back and forth whether the author of the article uh, was a Bitcoiner because uh, they referred to a, a, ho- or a secret Bitcoiner potentially. They referred to hardware wallet as a USB stick. So that was the first you know, red flag. I'm like, oh, okay. But then they also used this line later in the article that said, um, the individual in question, and we'll talk about that, uh, was holding the key to his financial survival. I'm like, okay, key, no pun intended. It's just an interesting note there. Um, but that article was really covering Alex Gladstein from the Human Rights Foundation talks about this a lot, how Bitcoin is used all around the world. And right now, there's some geopolitical turmoil, of course, in Ukraine and Russia. And there are individuals who are trying to leave these countries, right? Normal citizens. And there was an individual who's in Ukraine who wanted to leave. And when, when fleeing across the borders, you want to take your money with you. And the ATM lines were crazy long. You know, the banks were shutting down access to accounts. So this individual uh, that's focused on in this story actually used Bitcoin in, in kind of two really unique ways that I love highlighting. Is One is in the story, uh, it's mentioned that that individual needed local currency. He did a peer-to-peer exchange with his friend to send Bitcoin in exchange for local currency. So like the liquidity is pretty incredible to focus in on, right? I mean, not only is this a money you can secure yourself without a third party telling you yes or no, but it's also really liquid. Uh, there's a demand for it clearly. And so he was able to get this local fiat currency um, that he maybe needed to cover XYZ expenses. So that liquidity was put on display. But then also primarily uh, that individual was able to take their hardware wallet, which we'll touch on more in a second, across borders without going to a bank and requesting money be transferred or waiting in line somewhere to access cash at an ATM that was ultimately, you know, the line was a mile long. That individual was able to take their wealth with them just by holding onto a device. And, and he mentions in the article, even just a seed phrase would work. And we're, we're going to talk about that too. But the ability to cross borders with this bare asset, you know, not lugging a suitcase full of gold, but being able to just carry what ultimately feels and looks maybe like a really fancy USB stick, really, really powerful. And I'd like to add someone who's fleeing from, say, Ukraine to call it Poland, you know, across the border, they can take their Bitcoin hardware wallet. They can't take their Ukraine bank account. They can't take their real right. estate. And what can they take? You know, you can haul some gold bars. Maybe you could haul some cash. I mean, outside of that, like Bitcoin is like one of the best options, especially just the ease of transportation. Absolutely. Ease of transportation, 
even being able to do that exchange for the local currency that he needed. I believe it was, you know, 600 was the denomination. I don't know what the specific currency was, but peer-to-peer exchange like that, not signing over the deed to a property or taking a long time to transport gold from one location to another. It was a peer-to-peer exchange executed digitally on the Bitcoin blockchain, settled most likely in 10 minutes, like really, really incredible. All right. Now that we've talked about why self-custody is important, let's talk about Bitcoin wallets. There Mm -hmm. are a number of options for storing your Bitcoin in your own wallet, but how does this actually work fundamentally? Bitcoin wallets, the terminology and the nomenclature used in Bitcoin. Wallets is kind of the closest thing that folks can relate something to as it relates to your finances, right? You open up your wallet, you have dollar bills. It's where your money is stored. So I think that's the nomenclature that's been set Maybe a bit of an uphill battle to try to term like phrase it differently. There is a, you know, if you go into the deep recesses of Bitcoin Twitter, there's a, a war raging on terminology right now about this stuff. Do we call hardware wallets wallets or do we call them signing devices because they sign for transactions? And you know, at the end of the day, you want to be working towards the lowest common denominator. How do I tell, you know, my cousin at Thanksgiving dinner, you know, how do I tell him, hey, set up a Bitcoin wallet? Here's what it does. At its core, What your wallet is, and it can take many different shapes, right? You can have a Bitcoin wallet as an app on your phone. You can have a hardware wallet, which we'll discuss, popular brands like Trezor and Ledger and Coldcard. But ultimately, if you want to think about a wallet, the mental model you can use is a Bitcoin wallet is a set of Bitcoin addresses that you control the keys to. Now, where those Bitcoin addresses are populated and how you use them might change in form factor. But a Bitcoin wallet is just a collection of Bitcoin addresses that you have the keys to. And sometimes it includes you know, those keys to those addresses as well. All Bitcoin lives on addresses, right? Whether that's Bitcoin at Coinbase or Bitcoin you hold the keys to. Who is the key holder to those addresses? That's kind of where we get into the self-custody discussion. Bitcoin wallets, really just an amalgamation of keys to specific addresses, and then the aggregate balances of Bitcoin on those addresses. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? a tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, 
High interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. I think it's important to kind of remember that Bitcoin is really just a ledger showing Mm -hmm. which addresses own how much Bitcoin. And the wallet is essentially a device that's used to sign the transactions to move in and out of the addresses. Now, let's start with the uh, less secure, maybe wallet options. Talk to us about what a hot wallet is and what the benefits and risks are of using a hot wallet. Of course. And going back to your point there, yeah, you know, Bitcoin, like with the wallet nomenclature, a lot of folks, it's easy to think that Bitcoin lives in a hardware device, right? Like a ledger or treasure. But Bitcoin's never actually in the wallet. The wallet just secures your keys, whether it's a hot wallet or a cold wallet. That is a really interesting thing to focus in on. It's like you know, breaking that mental model is important, but it's prevalent. It's everywhere and it totally makes sense. So it's, you know, but we're going to continue to fight the good fight on that front. And it's also helpful when we say address for those listeners who maybe don't, they're not ultimately sure what a Bitcoin address is, is really just a collection of numbers and letters. You know, it's a long string of letters and numbers. Uh, they might look slightly different between wallets and that's a little bit more technical, but all you got to know is just a random string of letters and numbers. It's not, not like as clean quite uh, yet as an email address, but that's what we mean when we say addresses. Just use that as your kind of mental model, maybe about 20 or so characters that are just alphanumeric, just letters and numbers. Those addresses are tracked on the Bitcoin blockchain. So your question, Clay, hot wallets, hot wallets, and when we say hot, and then we'll use cold later as well, that just refers to the key, the private key to that Bitcoin, to your Bitcoin addresses, whether they have been exposed to the internet or not. So I have a hot wallet on my cell phone. I went to the app store, I downloaded Blue Wallet on my iPhone. When I set up my Blue Wallet, and there's a number of wallets that you can download on Android and, and iPhone. When I set up that wallet on my iPhone, I was given a seed phrase, a set of 12 or 24 words that I could write down. And that was my master private key. I could take those 12 or 24 words, put them on another hot wallet or even a, a hardware device like that gentleman's USB stick who is in Ukraine. And I could completely recover my addresses and control my Bitcoin with my keys. Now, the problem there on my phone is that those 12 or 24 word seed phrase, which we'll touch on, I think, uh, in, in just a little bit as well. That seed phrase was ultimately on, being shown to me on the screen of my phone. My phone's connected to my Wi-Fi or to my cell provider. So any malicious actor that potentially is you know, watching my phone, there's just the risk that my seed phrase has been exposed online. Hot wallets certainly have their place, of course, right? I think the appropriate analogy, going back to like the traditional financial system, is you know, I use a hot wallet. I use a mobile Bitcoin wallet because I want to be able to pay individuals, right? I have a Lightning wallet on my phone. Lightning Network is a way to send Bitcoin peer to peer instantly with like no transaction fees. Also, you think about it like a checking account, right? My savings account, my savings might be in cold storage, might be on my hardware devices. Uh, my keys are on my hardware devices, and I'm keeping that completely offline. Versus my checking account, if I have a couple hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin, a few million sats that I want to be sending around, I keep it on a hot wallet. So it's all about managing that risk, but hot wallets certainly do have their place. 
I really like that analogy you use where the hot wallet, it's a little bit less secure, but you can think of it, if you want to spend Bitcoin, you can treat it as your checking account. You can just directly, you know, you have your phone, it has direct access to your Bitcoin. You want to go and buy something at the Bitcoin conference, you can just walk up to the stand and do that. Or you head to El Salvador and buy your uh, sandwich from the local joint. And then the hardware wallet is, you would store most of your Bitcoin. You know, it's much more secure. So let's dig into the cold storage or hardware wallet options. What does the process look like for storing your Bitcoin on a hardware wallet like a Ledger or Trezor? And why is this route more secure? When thinking about cold storage and hardware wallets, and even in, in the question, and it's really important to break this model of Bitcoin, you know, sending it to a hardware wallet or living on a hardware wallet, really, when you're setting up a Trezor or a Ledger, or a cold card even, you're setting up your private keys, right? Your wallet contains your keys, your Bitcoin lives on addresses. When you're setting up those keys on a hardware device, when you're generating your master private key in the form of a seed phrase, these hardware devices are doing so in a way that the device itself is going to be displaying you your 12 or 24 words that you can then go write down. And it's not going to be a device that is you know, Wi-Fi enabled or you know, Bluetooth enabled. I think Ledger, there's a model for Bluetooth. But now when you're you know, generating that seed phrase, it's happening offline. So you don't have that risk of like, you know, my seed phrase is being shown to me on the screen of my computer or the screen of my phone. It's actually happening on a physical device. You then go write down that seed phrase on a piece of paper. Some individuals do go so far as stamping that seed phrase into steel because paper can burn and you know, your seed phrase is sacred. That's the most important thing you can keep secure. When we set up a cold storage wallet, and I think the cold comes in when it's like, Okay, there's no way that this seed phrase has been exposed to the internet. It's not hot in any fashion. It's cold. Um, then I guess maybe if you're, you know, if you're thinking about securing it in a safe in a basement, maybe that might be physically cold as well. But uh, yeah, that's that's generally the process. You know, when you dive into Bitcoin wallets and all these fancy terminology with this, once you start to dig in, you really understand that this is magic internet money. It, there's a lot of complicated stuff going on in the background, but it just works. So let's break down some of the terminology. You know, you have seed phrases, you have pass phrases, you have pin numbers when it comes to these hardware wallets. Could you break some of these down and help someone that's just new to this better understand what all of this really means? This is one of my favorite things to do. I also think it's in a way kind of cool. Bitcoin's not a company, it's not a central entity. There's nobody out there defining all these terms. So naturally, in an open source fashion, we're going to have different terminology for things. Seed phrase. I use seed phrase. If you're setting up a treasure wallet, they might call them backup words or something like that, right? Really defining this stuff is important. And it's important for shaping your mental model of self custody, too. So, starting with seed phrase, since I've mentioned it a couple of times, your seed phrase is the most important thing you can keep secure. And it's shown to you by your hardware device as a set of 12 or 24 words that are going to be randomly generated for you that you can write down. Now, even that sounds like we're in a sci-fi novel, right? It's like, what? Okay, I'm getting 12 random words. Well, okay, let's touch on just, a, let's go a little bit deeper. Those 12 or 24 words are not completely random. They're coming from what's known as the BIP39 word list. It's 2,048 words. These words are kind of, it's a standard in Bitcoin. So these words, if you generate a 12-word seed phrase onto a treasure, if you lose your treasure, you can take those 12 words populate them onto a ledger device and completely recover your Bitcoin wallet. Now that's pretty insane. So these 12 or 24 words are generated for you by the device. So that's a seed phrase. Again, most important thing you can keep secure. 
There's reasons why folks go to the lengths of stamping these seed words into steel. They are incredibly, incredibly important. Now, each device is also uh, potentially something that could get stolen, right? So you want to add a layer of physical protection onto the device. And that's where a pin comes in. Similar to like how you might have a pin on your cell phone, you can set a pin for your given hardware device. You know, if, you, if an attacker or somebody steals your hardware device, they go to plug in your treasure, uh, they need to enter a pin in order to get into the device. The pin and seed phrase, think about them as they're there to protect your Bitcoin, but they play drastically different roles. Seed phrase is your Bitcoin, so to speak, versus the pin, just a layer of physical protection for your device, right? If you forget your pin to your device, not the end of the world, you have your seed phrase physically secured, you can recover your wallet. That's pin and seed phrase. It's what I work with you know, every single day with clients. And then we, we, you mentioned something else called a passphrase. You can think about a passphrase as a 13th or a 25th word on top of that seed phrase. Now, passphrases fundamentally change your seed, right? If you're using a wallet with a passphrase enabled on it, you have your 12-word seed phrase, and then you have your additional passphrase. If that's the wallet you're using, and let's say you lose your treasure, if you want to go recover that onto a different device, just having those 12 words ain't going to be enough. You also need that passphrase. With that, you can think about, okay, sounds interesting, but I always like to lay out a word of caution there. If you're not an advanced user, adding that passphrase, it's really an additional single point of failure, right? One lone seed phrase is already a single point of failure if you lose those seed words. A seed phrase plus a passphrase, you just now have two single points of failure. So the, another thing to note about that passphrase, the 12 or 24 words are generated by your device coming from that word list. The passphrase can actually be defined by you. So humans hear that and we're, we, we think that we're a lot smarter and more random than we really are. So we hear that and we go, okay, great. A passphrase is case sensitive, right? Tyler with a capital T is a different passphrase than Tyler with a lowercase t. It can include special characters like an exclamation point. It can even include a space. So if you're setting a passphrase initially and you think that you wrote it down correctly or you maybe entered a wrong space, that could really, really set you up for a pretty stressful time if you ever do need to recover that seed phrase and passphrase and you're wondering if you have wrote it down correctly. Just a word of caution with passphrases. All of these things exist to protect your Bitcoin, just to varying degrees of severity. Again, circling back to seed phrases, the ultimate thing you can do um, is secure your seed phrases physically. I think one of the most important things you mentioned there was single point of failure. Say I stored my Bitcoin on a Trezor or Ledger and I had my house broken into and somehow they found my 24-word seed phrase. Immediately, I would want to get that Bitcoin off my Trezor. But I know that if I have a passphrase set up and they don't have access to that, then I know I should be fine. I'll just get it moved over. And I know that in the near term, they're not going to have that passphrase unless they were able to somehow you know, luckily guess what it is. So I think when you're thinking about storing your Bitcoin, you want to ensure that there's no single point of failure. You, know, you, you distribute all these uh, points of failure you know, across the physical world. And I think that's something that's really important that I think through personally when I think about storing my Bitcoin. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, the single points of failure cannot be stressed enough because you know, it is like my life savings, right? It's a lot of people's wealth. And so you're thinking about securing that so much more than uh, some call options that you might do you know, on, on a Robinhood app, right? It is your money. And thinking about single points of failure quite critically is really, really important to do. Really think about the trade-offs involved, right? This is Bitcoin. There's obviously going to be trade-offs. When you think about reducing single points of failure, 
think there are other solutions that exist for security that are just native to the Bitcoin protocol, multi-signature being one of them, what we do at our, our company, Unchained Capital. And so thinking about that, I think when it comes to risk parameters, I, I think about my potential attack vectors. I've seen it time and time again, where you can be your own worst enemy. So like for me with passphrase, it's like, do I trust myself to write it down correctly or give it to an error without it there being a, an error in the way that I wrote it down? So I think about that versus risk of theft or break-in. And that fluctuates and changes for everybody's different position, right? What works for Clay might not work for my colleague, Phil, might not work for me. Security is an evolution and thinking about these things. Uh, that's why it's always good also to do kind of a security self-assessment, I would say, every year with your Bitcoin setup. Like, is what I'm doing now still working for me? Have I moved into a new apartment or home? Uh, have I, you know, have these life changes happened? And do I need to kind of reassess my thinking on this stuff? So excellent, excellent point. Preparing for this discussion, we talked a little bit about how everyone goes through this sort of hero's journey where they discover mm -hmm. Bitcoin. They're like, oh, this stuff's pretty cool. It's like going up in price. So you buy some and then you're, you hear all about the stuff with, oh, you got to hold your own keys. And then you're like, oh, there's all these different ways to hold your own keys. So you might start with a hot wallet because it's just so easy. It's on your phone. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, well, is this the most secure? So it's pretty funny. We all go through that journey where like, you know, you learn more and more, you become more and more comfortable with Bitcoin and you get to that point where you have like the best security for your specific situation. Totally. And that's a really good point. It's not all or nothing, right? You can have a lot of funds you know, existing as a claim to Bitcoin on Coinbase or a given exchange. And when you, let's say you want to go down the rabbit hole of, okay, I'm going to buy a hardware device. I'm going to set up a seed phrase. You don't have to move your entire wealth over to that address that's secured by your hardware device. 100 bucks worth of Bitcoin. See how it functions. Like, you know, get your feet wet with it. This stuff is incredibly, uh, it's, it's powerful to learn at your own pace. And it's also kind of forgiving in the sense that you don't have to do everything at once. It is, you know, you want to feel ultimately comfortable and confident in your setup. And if that feeling of being comfortable and confident comes with a few test transactions, you know, sending it back to Coinbase, then from Coinbase back to your, your the addresses you control, going through those motions, uh, you know, it's an incredible learning opportunity. And also it does feel, you know, really, really good. It's kind of hard to put the feeling, to describe the feeling of, of holding Bitcoin with your own keys, but it's certainly uh, palpable. Is there anything else in regards to the hardware wallets that you know listeners should be mindful of, whether it's the risks or just best practices in storing their Bitcoin on one of these devices? I think these hardware devices, you always do first and foremost when you're setting up a device for the first time. You want to make sure, because these, these different devices, of course, have different methods of being set up or initialized, right? different ways of getting that seed phrase. So with the Ledger device, they use a compatible software on your Mac or PC called Ledger Live. With Trezors, there's a compatible software called the Trezor Suite that kind of guides you through the setup process. Just in terms of having good internet hygiene, always make sure that you're accessing the Ledger Live or Trezor Suite from the appropriate domain, right? It should be trezor.io. Everything should look and feel correct. It's really, really worth doing a double check when you're on these websites, downloading these softwares to set up your devices. Another thing with these devices is phishing scams, right? Bitcoin is very valuable. A lot of people want Bitcoin. Uh, you should never be entering your seed phrase, your 12 or 24 word seed phrase into any email or you know, if there's somebody, you get a malicious email asking like from Trezor, quote unquote, that wants, you know, for your safety, please enter your seed phrase. We're going to be securing your funds or moving your funds to a more secure location. Never be doing that. Again, it's low-hanging fruit. We think we won't, won't fall susceptible to this stuff, but if you, you cast enough lines, you're going to catch a fish. 
that's what these literal phishing uh, attempts, these, these hackers are trying to do. So just being diligent about physically securing your seed phrases, making sure that your treasure or ledger isn't just out on your desk at home. Or even if you're a fan of these companies and a fan of Bitcoin, like putting stickers on your laptops and stuff as you're walking through the airport, like probably not, you know, again, low hanging fruit, just general best practices, right? You don't want to put basically a red flag on yourself. Um, and then also having just one hardware device, you know, that's a single point of failure, right? That seed phrase that may be associated passphrase, that device itself. So having just one of these devices set up, great way to learn uh, when you're securing your generational wealth, there are other options available for you making use of potentially more of these devices. Let's talk about some of the other options. Unchain Capital offers unique services around Bitcoin self-custody that make holding your own private keys even more secure. Talk to us about what you guys offer at Unchained with the multi-sig solution. Everything at Unchained is built on this foundation of and wanting to empower businesses and individuals to hold their own keys. Now, at the core is a solution called multi-sig or multi-signature. Again, with Bitcoin and the terminology, it's kind of a mouthful, right? Multi-signature, what does that mean? When you're setting up one hardware device, right? You have one treasure, one ledger. You go to move your Bitcoin. If I want to send Bitcoin to Clay and I want to use my treasure to do so, I provide one signature and that then sends a Bitcoin on the Bitcoin blockchain over to an address that Clay controls. That's a single signature, just one hardware device. Multi-signature allows for a, it's a security setup. Our product is called a vault, our multi-signature product allows you to not just have one hardware device and one associated seed phrase kind of controlling your Bitcoin addresses, but rather a quorum is the, is the term, a set of keys. So the solution we use at Unchained Capital is a two of three multi-signature. So your vault with Unchained, you have three total keys controlling your addresses. One key is held by Unchained. Two keys are held by you. So you're always in complete power of moving your Bitcoin as you so please. You have two hardware devices, two associated sets of seed phrases, then Unchained has a key. So you have that redundancy in play now for your Bitcoin wallet, for your setup. Uh, you can think about it, the framework as maybe like a digital treasure chest or a digital vault. And that vault has three keyholes. And in order to open up that vault, you need any two of your three keys. That could be both of your keys, both of your devices could be plugged in, or it could be one of your devices and one of ours. Thinking about it like that, that's kind of the core of what we do is multi-signature security. And then from there, our clients that we work with, not only are they securing their generational wealth in the best way possible, they're also one step closer to our financial services like Bitcoin-backed uh, loans or you know, our IRA product has been really, really popular. Again, all built on this foundation of multi-sig, right? Even if you go to take out a loan with Unchained, you provide one of your keys to a multi-sig where that's where you're going to be sending your loan collateral. So you can prove to yourself that we're not going to be rehypothecating your funds or lending it out anywhere to get a yield. Like your collateral is just being secured by multi-sig until you pay off your loan and then we send you back your collateral. It's really this foundation of multi-sig security and then of course the education that goes along with it. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. 
While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. Now, I mentioned earlier that the important piece of storing your Bitcoin just on a hardware wallet is ensuring there's no single points of failure. And mm-hmm. the multi-sig solution ensures that as well. There's no single point of failure. You need two keys to sign a transaction. So with that, the security seems somewhat similar. But I'm curious, what are some of the additional benefits of using multi-sig to secure your Bitcoin? Yeah, you really have this increased fault tolerance is kind of what the term, especially in computer science is called. Like if something is fault tolerant, means that something can go wrong and you're still going to be okay. Now, if you are using one seed phrase to secure your funds, you know, one hardware device, one seed phrase, you lose that seed phrase, you better hope your device works. If your device works and we know that hardware is not perfect, right? I mean, old iPhones crash every other week. It's crazy. That is a single point of failure. Now, in the name of reducing or eliminating single points of failure, when you have a multi-signature setup, especially with Unchained, you think about it, we hold a key. So you're eliminating yourself as a potential single point of failure uh, where we hold a key. Now you have two keys. You have two devices, two sets of seed phrases. That's ultimately four things that you need to protect. Now, if any one of those four things, just you lose it or something happens, maybe if your device goes to the bottom of the ocean or you lose a seed phrase, you know, technically, and this would be a dire situation, but technically, you could lose up to three of those four elements and still be okay. But that's crazy, right? Because we're humans, crazy things happen, right? This is just the human nature, right? We, it's like Murphy's Law, like whatever can happen will happen. Having that fault tolerance, knowing that something can go wrong and you still have access to your Bitcoin where we have a key and then you would ultimately have at least one of those other items, that's just, I mean, it's like sleep easy at night 
kind of bottled up into one security solution. It really is. This question just came to my mind. What is Unchained doing with the keys? Do they have them in some old vault or how are those stored? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And thinking about the knowledge, you know, us as a key holder, it's really important to hone in on the fact that we are a collaborative member in your setup, right? Worth stressing at any given time, you hold the majority of your Bitcoin keys. Um, we're there kind of, you know, as needed as a backup key. Of course, then we have a bunch of education coming along with partnering with Unchained. When it comes to our keys, there's a certain subset of individuals at Unchained that have you know, knowledge about our, our private key and our signing procedures. What I do know is that our private keys are generated offline in an air-gapped fashion, meaning not touching uh, any internet-connected device, and are geographically distributed. When it comes to the secure generation of our keys, I know how that works at a high level, but even myself on the concierge team, you know, knowing the exact details just for good operational security, that's kept to a very strict set of eyeballs. That's interesting. Now, you're on the concierge team, you mentioned, and you're working with people one-on-one, these individuals and businesses. How do you recommend these people store their own keys? What are some best practices on how those should be stored or what people usually do? When you think about those four things that you need to secure and protect, right? both of your devices, both of your seed phrases, whether you're a business or you're an individual... The pinnacle of security with this setup is going to be four separate geographic locations, right? One for each of these elements. It's kind of my greatest fear doing a concierge uh, onboarding, as we call them, you know, spending time with an individual, setting them up with private keys. Then as soon as we get off the call, they just open up their desk drawer and put everything in it. Like you definitely do not want to be doing that. You don't want to be co-locating any of your two elements. If you have four separate locations, could be safe at a home or an office, could be a safety deposit box at a bank could be a trusted friend or family member. With that one, you really want to know that that individual knows the importance of what they're securing. So maybe you'll add a little asterisk there. It could be a, you know, if you're fortunate enough to have a vacation home or a cabin, there's a bunch of options available to you. Keeping things geographically separate is incredibly, incredibly important, right? If there's one area that's compromised, you know, if you have just one element of your setup over up in your cabin, like my family has a cabin in northern Wisconsin, if there's a fire up there, Okay, that's just one element out of the four that I need to protect. You know, I have that fault tolerance. Everybody's situation is a little bit different, right? If you're not in the position where you have just four locations right off the bat, well, security is an evolution. What works for you now in May of 2022 might not work in May of 2023. You can always be changing this stuff. At a minimum, core principle is don't be co-locating any two elements, right? If both of your seed phrases are in the same safe and the safe gets stolen, well, why did you, you know, what was the point of, of storing them there in the first place? That's really, really important to focus on is keeping things physically secured, your seed phrases written down or stamped into steel, not just in a Microsoft Word document on your computer, physically secured and then geographically separated. This might be a silly question. Has I'm more of a finance-minded person. Would it be possible for a regulator to go to a company like Unchained and shut down your operations? And how would customers be able to get access to their Bitcoin if they can't like get access to your website or something to that effect occurs? This is where uh, you know Murphy's Law kind of rears its head again, right? You always want to be thinking, especially when it is again your your generational wealth, right? Your life savings. You act and prepare as if that can happen, right? It's my personal belief that we have US congressmen and women holding Bitcoin. There are nations that have made it legal tender, right? There are things going on with this asset, with this new emerging money, where I think 
regulatory capture of any specific company is probably unlikely. You want to be kind of on the defensive, thinking as if it can, right? So an important part about using Unchained Capital as a collaborative custody partner, holding one key in your set of three, is that we talk all the time about eliminating single points of failure. Well, we'd be remiss if we didn't look ourselves in the mirror and say, okay, how could Unchained be a single point of failure, right? What happens if our website goes down? What happens if, poof, we're just gone one day, right? An individual goes to our website, they can't find it. Well, we always want you to be able to access your Bitcoin. This is, we don't want to be the gatekeeper to your funds. So with your two keys and your multi-signature setup, there are, and this is a really powerful thing about just the Bitcoin protocol, right? Unchained didn't invent multi-sig or it's not proprietary. It's just open source. Multi-sig is at the Bitcoin protocol level. That's where you can allow for multi-sig setups. If something drastic were to occur, you as a Bitcoin, just a Bitcoin user holding your own keys, you would be able to rebuild your multi-sig setup. You'd be able to rebuild the vault that you create with us in another Bitcoin wallet, we call them a coordinator, like a multi-sig coordinator software. It would take your key information, coordinate it all correctly, and you'd be able to see all of your balances and still use your two keys. Now, that's where it still does get a, you know, a little bit technical, but that's why we're here. We're trying to provide really awesome educational resources. We want to be that navigator to help people learn how to do this stuff. An open source tool that I work in all the time is called Caravan. It's just it's out on GitHub. It's worked on by our engineers plus others in the community. Really, when you set up a vault with Unchained Capital, you get, and especially going through the concierge process, we make sure to, to touch on this, you get a special file, a wallet configuration file. It's kind of like a backup file for your vault. It looks like a bunch of code, but it contains some information about your hardware devices, as well as our key as well. And when you have this file, this backup file, you know that you could take this backup file and go over to Caravan, or another popular option is Sparrow Wallet or Electrum. These other open source wallets could see this file. All of a sudden, they read the file, your funds appear, you'd be able to use your two keys. Unchained is not going to be a single point of failure. Now, I know that's a mouthful. I know for the, for the listener at home, they're like, what? <laughs> but this is incredibly fun. This is really powerful. This is you being able to take your two keys. Let's say Unchained Capital goes away. Okay, I'm going to take my two keys. I'm going to go down to an internet cafe in El Salvador. I have my backup file. I'm going to completely restore my multi-sig vault and send my money how I so please. It's not the plot of a sci-fi book. It's real life and it's happening right now. I help clients do it every single day. Yeah, I can definitely see the value with Unchained, especially with like the personalized service you offer. You know, if you onboard someone, you're hopping on a call with them, you're answering any of their questions. So I'm curious, how much does it cost for a retail investor to work with Unchained to store their Bitcoin through this multi-sig solution? Because multi-sig is embedded in the Bitcoin protocol. Creating a multi-sig address with your own keys is free, right? So our vault product at its core is free. You sign up for an Unchained account. There's no yearly charge or anything like that for an individual who wants to create a vault. Now, we do have our concierge service where you can get on the phone uh, for multiple calls with my team and, and we go through everything. We go through device setup. If you're setting up a brand new Trezor, we'll walk you through that. We'll build your vault. We'll help you download that special backup file. We'll talk about how to use your vault. We'll help you do a deposit from Coinbase into your vault. That's one of my favorite things to do. We have these educational sessions, and those are called our concierge onboarding sessions. Now, they do start at $1,250. That is a scenario where you already have two hardware devices. You'd be able to just you know, order a concierge onboarding package, schedule some time with us, be ready to go. But we also do provide hardware devices for individuals who don't have any. So if you need a Trezor, we have Trezor Model 1s that we'd send you for an additional $75 per device. So you tack on to that $1,250, depending on how many devices you need. 
Now, the cool thing about the concierge onboarding process is let's say that base level of 1250, that 1,250 bucks, after the vault setup, we deposit $1,000 worth of Bitcoin into your vault to kind of you know, get you started, right? At its core, you know, it's kind of like a Bitcoin rebate. So at its core, it's 250 bucks to get on the phone with us, talk about this stuff, and kind of have a Bitcoin partner. Now, that's for individual accounts. Business accounts do have a yearly maintenance fee, and we do have you know, other products, right? We earn revenue because people hear that all the time and they're like, wait, so if vaults are free and we you know, pay for the concierge onboarding service, but it's not a yearly subscription, how do you make revenue? So we generate revenue from our financial services, right? You know, interest payments on loans, trading for you know, when we help folks set up their Bitcoin IRA. There's other things that we make money on, but we really think that Bitcoin security, having the most secure setup possible is going to be free. I love that Bitcoin rebate you do. Someone might have just listened to this whole conversation. They're just like, man, I am not ready to take self-custody of my Bitcoin or like, I am just not a tech savvy person. You know, There's going to be some people out there like that, I'm sure. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on owning a Bitcoin proxy, for lack of a better term, such as MicroStrategy or the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. You know, holding something like this as opposed to holding Bitcoin on an exchange or you know taking self custody. This is really interesting, especially when you see moves like MicroStrategy buying a ton of Bitcoin. It's like, okay, well, is that just you know, essentially a form of getting exposure to Bitcoin? The thing I will say before I, I kind of dive into my thoughts on Bitcoin proxies is you know, if you have time at night or on the weekends to scroll through TikTok or Instagram and you can go grocery shopping with a grocery list, you can follow a guide to set up a treasure and write down a seed phrase. It's going to pay so many dividends to you in the future if you take that step. So I would encourage those of you out there to really think about this stuff. Holding your own keys to your Bitcoin, that's why we Bitcoin. We're out here changing the money. And we're doing that by enforcing that strict supply of 21 million and holding it with our own keys, right? We think about getting exposure to Bitcoin. These companies and even the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, so there's GBTC, there's MicroStrategy, maybe there's Bitcoin mining companies that you can invest in. Not investment advice, people can certainly do what they want with their money, but I will always choose actually buying the underlying asset. 10 days, uh, 10 days out of 10, just because if you think about it, if it's desirable enough for MicroStrategy to go put on their balance sheet and you have the access to just buying that underlying asset and taking full custody of it with your own keys, why not do it? You also need to value these companies um, in terms of like net asset value, right? So you're not only taking kind of the market, you're also not just taking the Bitcoin exposure, but you're also taking the like market sentiment for a particular company. Right? You're also exposed to all of the risks inherent to a given company, right? MicroStrategy. If they have bad earnings, or if it's really morbid and crazy, but if Michael Saylor, something happens to him, right? then that market sentiment is what's driving the price alongside Bitcoin price action. So if you really want true Bitcoin exposure, just buy Bitcoin, hold it with your own keys. The community is incredibly helpful. There's so many knowledge resources out there that are just for free. That's how I particularly think about Bitcoin proxies. Um, and investing in them. I think they're interesting. I think it's a nice, maybe a gateway drug to learning more about Bitcoin. But at the end of the day, I'm always going to be holding my own keys. Yeah. Again, it goes back to that counterparty risk. You're taking additional risk and different types of risks when you're buying those Bitcoin proxies. So Tyler, thank you so much for joining me today. This was such a valuable episode, just jam-packed with knowledge. I hope we can bring you or someone else from Unchained back on in the future. Before we close out the episode, where can the audience go to connect with you and Unchained? First of all, thank you, Clay, for having me on. I know talking about this stuff, if there's one goal of, uh, of mine with this episode is that uh, there's a listener out there who's been thinking about doing these things 
But I want to just tell you again and stress, take the dive. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. You can familiarize yourself with these concepts. You can set up a Bitcoin hardware device, write down a seed phrase, play around with it. It is really, really powerful. So thank you, Clay. This was an an awesome opportunity for us to jump on and talk about self-custody. Unchained is pumping out awesome content. Not only do we have these services you know, from a multi-sig and IRA and loans perspective, but we also have an incredible blog and knowledge base. Right? We have articles that talk about how are Bitcoin fees on the Bitcoin network calculated? What do they mean? Like Just general Bitcoin knowledge, that's going to be out on our blog, um, something I'm looking forward to contributing to more as well. Definitely unchained.com to learn more about the company. I primarily hang out when I'm not helping folks, uh, when I'm not putting private keys in people's hands. I'm usually hanging out on Twitter. I'm at clockwork underscore prior. That is my, uh, my Twitter handle. I usually try to do an educational thread every week about a different topic in Bitcoin. So if you have any ideas, just like shoot me a DM. I'll absolutely uh, write about it. I learn as I write these threads too. But yeah, that's where, where you can find us. Thank you again, Clay. This was really, really awesome. You bet. It was a pleasure having you on. Thank you, Tyler. Awesome. Thank you. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please go ahead and follow us on your favorite podcast app so you can get these episodes delivered automatically. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating or review on the podcast app you're on. This will really help us in the search algorithm so others can discover the show as well. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There you'll find all of our episodes, some educational resources, as well as our TIP finance tool that Robert and I use to manage our own stock portfolios. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.